Hi, I'm Betty Long, and welcome to the Lighting Your Way podcast. During season two, we are delving in deeper to the amazing lives and stories of nurses and other healthcare professionals from around the country. We will also be talking with a few of my nurse advocate colleagues at Guardian Nurses, and on occasion, even some real live patients. You'll get a behind the scenes peek at the healthcare system, as well as get advice on how to get the best care when you or a loved one is a patient. Nursing education has come a long way since Florence Nightingale trained the first nurses at the Nightingale Training School in London in 1860. While uniforms may thankfully have gotten easier, curriculums certainly have not. Nurses graduated from the Nightingale School in one year. And in the 161 years that have passed since then, the training of nurses in the U.S. has grown to two years with associate degree programs, three years diploma programs, and now four years with baccalaureate programs. Interest in a nursing career remains strong even after the troubling images of the COVID-19 pandemic. And though there are more than 4 million nurses in the United States, the number of nursing faculty, the nurses who train new students, is dwindling. According to the American Association of Colleges of Nursing, in 2020, thousands of qualified applications were not accepted at schools of nursing due primarily to a shortage of clinical sites, faculty, and resource constraints. Talk to 10 nurses about what is the best way to train a nurse, and you may get 10 different answers. Regardless, the truth in this country is that we are going to need more nurses, and they are going to need to be trained. Here with me to talk about nursing education is Jennifer Fry, Ph.D., R.N. Dr. Fry is the founding director of the nursing program at Cabrini University in Radnor, Pennsylvania. She has more than 15 years of academic nursing education experience, as well as nursing leadership and administrative experience. She has served as the Dean and Director of the ARIA Health School of Nursing and has taught research, leadership, med surge, and critical care courses to undergraduate and graduate nursing students at DeSales University, Moravian College, and Widener University. Welcome, Dr. Jennifer Fry, to the Lighting Your Way podcast. Thank you for taking time to be with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having you know me on. Oh no, it's great. It's great to talk to you uh, this day before Thanksgiving, uh, Jen. We have been talking uh, about a lot of topics this uh, season two uh, of the podcast, and one of the, um, I guess, not issues, but one of the items I've wanted to talk about has been education. But before we start talking about that, which is your specialty, tell me about your path to nursing. How, how, you know, we all have a story about how we became a nurse. What, what is your story? Absolutely. So, well, I always, my mom is a nurse. She was an OB nurse. Um, So I always thought that what she did was cool, but it was not for me. And my dad was an architect and he would go to work (laughs) in the morning dressed in his iron shirt and go to the office and come back and he would still look pretty much the same and and smell good. And my mom would go to work um, smelling good and came home a little less than, you know, fresh. Um, And I always thought, why? Why would anybody do that? Why wouldn't he just be an architect? Um, And then unfortunately, when I was 13, my father had his first heart attack, and I got to see firsthand 
why it is worth it to not look fresh when you get home at the end of your shift. Um, We were in the emergency room with my dad and he was, you know, obviously very nervous because he had just had a, you know, heart attack. And what I noticed immediately was that they didn't just take care of him in the emergency room, but they also were very focused on me and my mother, my brothers, in terms of taking care of the family. And I think that was a big aha moment to me because I realized, oh, wow, okay, you're not just taking care of the immediate emergency. You're taking care of everything and everybody around you. And I really like that holistic approach. Um, And it was at that point that I decided that I I, I got it. I get it, mom. I understand why why you do what you do. Um, And I started to volunteer at the hospital at the age of 13 as a candy striper. And yes, I wore the whole red and white striped thingy. Um, Yeah. Delightful. (laughs) But um, (laughs) not unlike my uniform later at Villanova, I have to say it was blue and white, almost like a candy striper revamp. But um. Yeah. So, and then I was a candy striper. As soon as I was able to take the nursing assistant course, I took that. I was 16 and then I was a nursing assistant slash, you know, intern all the way up until the time I went to nursing school at Villanova for my undergrad um, and practiced, you know, being, you know, in, in the healthcare environment, certainly associated with my education, but also with, you know, the opportunity that I had to be at the bedside as a nursing assistant. So I did that until I graduated and that's really how I ended up in, in nursing. Wow. And, and not in OB nursing. You still, uh, no, mom. no. <laughs> I am, a, um, <laughs> I say that with love, but that is not for me. It scares me. Um, I'm, I ironically went into cardiac care. I ended up ultimately being a critical care nurse with an open heart um, specialty, cardiothoracic uh-huh. care specialty. Yeah. So, of course, I That's went into you know, from heart attack to cardiac nurse. Right, right, right. And and architect. Uh, architect is, <laughs> is still still in your back of your head. Um, so <laughs> so nursing education. So you were in critical care. Uh, and then how what what uh, gave you the bug for nursing education? Um, all through. Well, first of all, I really appreciated the mentorship that I received as, you know, a candy striper, nursing assistant, nurse, student nurse, um, new nurse. I was fortunate to be in an environment, for the most part, um, that was, you know, conducive to my learning and my growth, and people were willing to teach me if I asked questions. So I naturally gravitated as soon as I, you know, even as a nursing assistant and certainly as a nurse, um, was always drawn to the education, showing the, you know, that the people that were our patient techs or our nursing assistants, you know, once I was a nurse, I would show them like the cool stuff and explain to them why. And then I certainly liked patient education. Um, In cardiac intensive care, there's a lot of patient education. There's a lot of patient education everywhere. But um, I particularly enjoyed the variety that came with caring for, you know, post-operative cardiac patients Um, in terms of their lifestyle and explaining the procedures and just everything. And I really enjoyed that education aspect. And then I had an opportunity to go back for my master's um, and I did so. And that is when I got into taking up students um, in the clinical environment as an adjunct professor at uh, the sales university where I was enrolled as a master's student. So I had an opportunity to kind of see what that was like. I still practiced in, you know, the intensive care unit and the PACU, um, with the post-anesthesia care unit recovery room after surgery. Um, And I really just enjoyed that experience. So as I was finishing up my master's at DeSales, I took my first full-time faculty appointment at DeSales. um, And that was my, my very first 
you know, full-time faculty position. And I learned, as with most, most people in nursing education, trial by fire, learned a ton of um, stuff even the first year that I was there. And then it just have compounded since then. Yeah, and you've you've had several. You've been at several um, facilities and and healthcare institutions, and now you're the founding director at Cabrini for their nursing program. How long have you That's been there? Correct. I've been at Cabrini for three years now, um, and during that time, the first year there was no students because Cabrini did not have a nursing program. So the reason that I was hired was to develop um, and implement, operationalize a nursing program. So that's what I did. I spent the first year of my employment there learning about the university and its mission, because that was certainly the foundation upon which the the curriculum for the nursing was built, um, right. and tying together all of the things in the world and society in our local communities, um, and certainly, you know, our local healthcare networks and healthcare clinical partners in terms of what they need for nurses, you know, or, well, nursing students as they transition, nursing graduates as they transition out into, you know, full-fledged nurses. Like, what does that transition to practice look like? What do we need to teach them? Um, and certainly, there's no shortage of information out there as to what our nurses need to know, um, certainly guided by the State Board of Nursing for Pennsylvania. That's who regulates nursing education programs. They're also the ones who regulate our nursing licenses in each and every state, obviously ours, Pennsylvania. So there's regulations that are to be followed very rigorously. Um, And then, you know, accreditation agencies, future accreditation agencies, looking at what their guidelines suggest, our major nursing and nursing education organizations in in our nation are the National League for Nursing and the um, American Association of Colleges of Nursing. So both of those um, (laughs) have have a lot of have a lot of things to say about what should be in nursing (laughs) education. So that that sounds like a yeah, that sounds like a huge task. Uh, No wonder uh, it takes so much time to get a program started. Wow. It does. It does. But there's a lot of guidelines and you just have to, you know, the American, the AACN it's called, um, they have an accrediting arm called the CCNE. Lots of acronyms. It's just like, you know, nursing education has just as many acronyms as uh, nursing in general. Um, But the Commission on Collegiate Nursing Education is the accrediting body and they just put out new essentials um, that we as a body, um, as an organization, we voted on them earlier this year and now they are to be implemented across all baccalaureate programs um, in the U.S. So certainly those guidelines go into it. Our stakeholders, um, hospitals, health networks, community care centers. Um, the curriculum at Cabrini is very, very focused, um, like I said, on our mission of social justice. So right. the lens of our curriculum is health equity, access for vulnerable and underserved populations. And that's, you know, in the spirit of Mother Cabrini, for whom the uh, institution is named, Cabrini University. Right. So right. we really focus on public health and population, public excuse me, public health, um, and that through that health equity lens, and then certainly things that are near and dear to me, um, leadership that nurses should have a voice, no matter what table they're at, no matter how big, how significant, nurses belong everywhere, saying, um, you know, speaking, advocating for patients, communities, both at the local and the global level. Um, So leadership and that using your voice wherever you are, whatever capacity is threaded throughout our curriculum, that felt important to me, as well as um, psych and mental health, because as we know from what's happening in our nation currently and society, um, that's something that that it needs to be in there. So it, it, the curriculum development was um, kind of fun um, for me because it was putting together a whole lot of, of 
pieces of a puzzle in a very different way than it has been um, put together before simply by nature of the fact it's a brand new program and um, having as much time in nursing education and exposure to students on many different levels and many, you know, master's like all across the um, baccalaureate, so master's to second degree students, adult students, traditional students, um, having all the input from them and the experiences with them, and then actually speaking with some of the graduates, recent graduates, as I developed the program to ask, you know, what is it that you got from your nursing program that you really liked? What is it that you didn't get from your nursing program you wish you would have as you're transitioning into practice, you know, in a hospital or a community setting, um, and taking their feedback and, and putting it into the curriculum as well. So it was really fun to blend all the formal strict regulations and right. the guidelines put out by national entities and talk to our stakeholders in the community and our health network, talk to the students, talk to just the, the vulnerable and underserved populations, you know, going out into the community and understanding their needs um, and putting it all together in a, in a nice package. Um, wow. And that's what I did essentially for the first year I was there wow. and um, at, at Cabrini. And then in 2020, fall of 2020, we accepted our very first cohort and they are Yay. now in their second year. Yay. Yay. Yeah, so that's, that was great. Um, now we have two cohorts. And I'm I'm real proud of both of them. So we have first level students and second level students are what's traditionally referred to as freshmen and sophomores. And we're recruiting our third class now. So it's it's a lot of fun and it's an intentionally small program. So we know the students really well. You know, we only have in those two cohorts together, we have, you know, less than 40 students. So we really do know them. And that's that's a Cabrini thing. And it's for sure a Cabrini nursing thing to have those relationships to help foster their growth and development. Where are most of the students from Philly? They from Philadelphia. Um, We get a good range. I mean, we go, you know, the tri-state area certainly is popular, but we have students um, from, you know, up up upper state, New York, New England. um, But most of them are generally from the Philadelphia region and then certainly the tri-state. So you've had a a 15 plus year uh, uh, tenure in nursing ed. And even in that short of a time, you've talked about all the regulation, the uh, regulatory bodies that are involved in and setting up programs. But I know that there have been significant changes in how nursing students are being trained, um, certainly when, since you and I have been trained. But can you speak to some of those changes just more broadly? Sure. So, I mean, nursing education, I'd say the biggest, you know, even pre-COVID, the biggest change that has happened is the scope of practice of the nurse. Um, okay. When I graduated from nursing school, what I needed to know and what I and we expect our graduates now to know is tenfold. Um, there's so much more responsibility at the bedside or, you know, at your direct patient line, wherever you are, if you're functioning in the community or acute care, wherever you are. There's so much more responsibility. We're health navigators. We're coordinate, care coordinators. We're patient advocates. Um, you know, our scope of practice in terms of technical skill has expanded. And then the scope of practice as a human, as a nurse. Um, has expanded as well because that's what society demands. I mean, even people, like even as an ICU nurse, you know, psych mental health, of course, comes into that. But now there's just such more of an awareness um, of the needs of that vulnerable population. And then there's, you know, the awareness of uh, the other vulnerable populations right now. You know, nothing has has brought to light um, more than the last couple of years with COVID and our, you know, systemic issues that are just foundationally bred into this country um, and all the systems that it's built that are built within them. 
um, addressing that and the health inequality that happens as a result of that. And that's something that's not new by any spread, you know, it's not new at all. However, it's something that we're paying attention to differently now. And nurses okay. and public health and all healthcare practitioners um, now have that responsibility as well to, you know, for the good of the public, for the good of the patients and communities to be looking at that and addressing that. So the scope of practice of nurses now um, versus the scope of practice, you know, even 10, 15 years ago is, is huge. Okay. Also, there's just so much more focus, you know, um, there's a million things that we could talk about, Betty, to be honest with you, but um, I'll just choose a couple. Um, you know, the whole in, insurance and reimbursement and value-based care, you know, right. that certainly right. comes in. You know, nurses have to think about that in terms of, not that they shouldn't be thinking about infection prevention and things like that, but there's this whole new level of you know, patient experience and making right. sure that we are giving and delivering value-based care. And that used to be something that was at a higher level. Um, the people, you know, in the offices worried about, right. and now it's the bedside right. nurse that's worried about it. So there's just so many things that are wow. um, in, involved I, I in didn't, nursing care. I didn't, you're right about the scope of practice, I think, certainly. But so, you know, do you think four years is enough? <laughs> Sounds like four years for a BSN may not be enough time. Is four years enough time? Um, it depends on, you know, what we're going to have the nurses do. So nursing has a breadth of um, opportunity in terms of where we practice. And as we know, we have the entry level that is desirable at this point, and given the recommendations of the stakeholders, national organizations, is BSN at the bedside. However, right. we still educate nurses in a diploma setting and we still educate nurses in an associate degree or a community college setting. Um, though all three of those nurses, BSN, ADN, and diploma nurses sit for the same nursing license. So they have the same the same scope of practice, but what a baccalaureate degree um, does is it gives a more breadth to the understanding of the social sciences um, of the, you know, it's a nursing degree is a nursing degree, but when you add on the liberal arts or the baccalaureate level, you're adding on a wider paradigm. And that leads to what we have, um, you know, been thinking for years is that we need to start getting students that are graduating or graduates from baccalaureate programs into master's and doctoral programs because we cannot address the shortages of nurses until we address what is going on in nursing education because we can have a million people signed up to be in nursing school but if we don't have the faculty to teach them because there's a faculty right. shortage then right. we cannot feed the pipeline that we so desperately need and the pipeline is dwindling because of retirement um, yep. that has been something that has been coming for over a decade and then layer on COVID and the mass exodus from um, nursing that is occurring right. as a result of that, we need now more than ever to bolster it. So is four years enough? It depends what kind of practice they're going to do, but BSN okay. at the bedside is the desirable goal so as there, an entry-level so, general practitioner. Okay. So, so I just want to go back. So there are two other ways to train nurses that you mentioned the associate degree. Right. And then mm -hmm. there's also the diploma programs that are still in existence, although m small. There's a few of them. Right. There's less of them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Most uh, most, as you say, most desired as a BSN. Uh, and particularly if you're uh, pursuing employment at hospitals that are magnet uh, certification, then they want exactly. BSNs. So, OK. Yeah. And so a lot let's of employee, talk a And that's exactly it. The, the workforce is, is 
is driving that. So will employers hire someone without a BSN? Some in some areas like Philadelphia, um, no, you know, they won't. Right. They're less likely to hire you if you don't have your BSN. But then there's some rural areas that would be happy to have any nurse um, right. and be able to utilize whichever type of, you know, whichever training that they had or whatever kind of nursing education they had, they will utilize them to the full capacity, um, which is how right. it should be. Regardless of where you're being educated, you have to land in a place where that will utilize you um, to your full capacity and then help you grow and develop so you can you know, be part of the greater good for nursing. Jen, as you see the uh, the nursing shortage and, of course, you know, the nursing, the education uh, shortage as well, not having educators as well, uh, to your point about retirement. Do you see programs coming back that are uh, the maybe that hospitals are relaxing those requirements to have BSNs? Do, do you see anything like the LPNs kind of growing in um, notoriety? Um, that's a great question, and one that I don't know a whole lot about. I mean, my sense is, without having data in front of me to speak to, um, my sense is, is that we are utilizing nurses of any capacity at this point, but the the scope of practice of an LPN or an LVN, which is a licensed practical or licensed vocational nurse, is, is um, different than a registered nurse. So they right. can't function, even if they're functioning at a really high level within their scope of practice, they have limitations. Um, there are things that LPNs can't do that RNs can do. Um, so yeah, is there, I mean, that's a very personal opinion. You could put a hundred nurses or nurse educators in a room and ask them this question and, you know, get it split across the board as to, you know, is there a place for LPNs in this world? Some people okay. will say, no, it should be BSN or above. You know, we need to, with the, the standards of care that we have with all what our stakeholders demand, we need to have BSN or above at the bedside. And then you'll have others that will see the value in, you know, licensed practical nurses being, in functioning to their full scope of practice and being in the team with the registered nurses and all right. working together um, to for a collective goal. So it depends right. on the philosophy of wherever LPNs are being hired, whatever part of the country, whatever environment, urban or rural, you know, right. and the, the basic, the philosophical aspect of, of, of all of that is to, you know, how do we utilize LPNs? Some people right. say no. Some people say yes, and it really yeah. is dependent. I, I really feel like it's dependent on your situation and what your workforce availability is as to yeah. whether or not you'll entertain an LPN. Um, well, I think there's value in them. It's just that we have to, my personal opinion is there's value in all nurses. We just have to be able to identify and tier what what all of us do. What are our right. roles? What defines right. one from another? And how do we work together collectively to maximize on our skill sets so that we can, you know, all do are the things that we're good at and that we are trained for um, and collectively do a good job um, taking care of our patients. Right. Because, right. Because I think to your point, and we'll talk a little bit about the nursing shortage all over, but you know, if there are opportunities to uh, uh, mediate, you know, (laughs) mitigate some of that um, problem and the shortage, seems like we should try to come up with creative solutions to do that. Um, let me ask you about the the education uh, perspective. You mentioned uh, that there is much like there is across the board a nursing shortage, but also in education and academia is that there, at least to my knowledge, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, programs um, when you found out when you were at Villanova and went to DeSales, you have to get a master's in nursing, correct, to teach at a nursing program. Is that still the case? Well, that's up for debate. Um <laughs> 
There's, okay, again, good, you know, good. There's, there's multiple multiple avenues through which you could teach, and it depends, again, on the institution. Um, there's a lot of talk right now of, you know, non-nursing faculty teaching within nursing programs and the value of that. So somebody that's, you know, um, a social worker, a psychologist, a public health expert, Great. those are non-nursing faculty, but they could certainly richen and diversify the school Correct. of thought within a nursing program. So um, yes. I'm in that camp that that's cool. Yep. Many people are opposed to that. Um, that's really a basic philosophical thing. Um, and then in terms of are you, you know, do you need to be master's prepared or doctorally prepared um, to teach in academia? Again, well, I, I say academia, and when I say academia, I mean like a four-year program or above. Um, okay. But certainly there are nursing programs that teach LPNs. There are nursing programs that are diploma in nature, and there's, uh, there's nursing programs that are associate degree programs. For schools like that, um, and some of the, you know, academic schools, the four-year baccalaureate or higher, um, they will, you know, take certain nurse educators with, especially, particularly in the specialties that are desirable, the highly desirable specialties would be like men, um, psych mental health, peds, OB, okay. you know, not that not every nurse can teach those specialty areas. Um, okay. You know, they'll take them at the master's level, but what, what really comes into play is especially in a baccalaureate or um, higher education unit, such as a college or university, is are they tenurable? Are they, are we able to keep them? Um, certainly somebody with a master's degree, usually that's not on, they're not in a track where they can become tenurable unless they are in a doctoral program. But there's a lot of discussion about, okay, what about a DMP versus a PhD or even an EDD um, with a nursing degree, you know, tacked onto it. What, what is the terminal degree in nursing? No one has a good answer for that. There's a lot of white papers out there and a lot of opinion about in, as to whether or not a DMP is something um, that is tenurable within an institution of higher ed versus, you know, a PhD, which is, of course, the research focus. Because in a nutshell, a PhD creates research, um, creates, adds to the science of nursing, um, and a DMP focused on practice uses, learns to utilize that research for the, you know, better practice outcomes. And that's a very rudimentary, you know, in a nutshell, gen definition of that. Um, It's much (laughs) deeper than that. But there's, there's so many revolving conversations about what is tenurable? What is a DMP versus a, a, a PhD? What is a master's level? What if they're a CA, What if they're a certified nurse practitioner? What if they're a nurse anesthetist? What if they are an advanced practice nurse? Does that count? Um, just because wow. they're masters prepared. So the idea is, is the push is to have everybody, even if you are a CRNP or you are a nurse anesthetist or a nurse midwife, that you should be moving towards your doctorate. Even if you're practicing or if you're an academic, you should be moving towards expanding your education, becoming a doctorate of practice, um, or getting a doctorate in practice, a DMP, so that you can better serve your patients. But what, where's their role in, in academia? Um, right. Certainly there are, so I think there's a huge role for them, but that's a whole other conversation. But um, I feel like not every institution has, it, their model supports that. So it really, again, goes back to philosophical um, roots of the leader of the program, of the institution itself, um, and, you know, everything that's going on around us in terms of what we're being told from the nursing organizations and um, in terms of guidance and white papers surrounding that. So there's no easy answer to that. Well, it, but it sounds like there's a lot of bureaucracy to to get through before we can get a solution to a crisis that just continues to get worse w- thanks to COVID, right? And the retirement of mature 
bedside nurses, you know, nurses who've been in nursing for 40 years or 30 years that want to leave and leaving a gaping hole in, in bedside. Mm-hmm. Right. And we don't ha- and yet we have people coming, young people or, or folks coming into nursing programs or want to come into nursing programs and the programs can't accommodate them because they don't have enough training and staff to train them. Exactly. Right? Yeah, so it's exactly. a, it's a, yeah, it's, it's really a, a conundrum that seems to be uh, really needing to be resolved if we're going to get through this crisis. Um, yeah, so there's th- many me, things that me... need to be tucked away to get through this yeah, crisis. Yeah, but I, I know. <laughs> well, let me just ask one question about COVID. I, I know that there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of discussion, obviously, um, but in terms of how COVID affected nursing education, I have heard from so many of my colleagues in direct care that the students who uh, typically would come in on their unit to have uh, practical experience and, and work with a preceptor didn't get to do that because obviously uh, COVID limited their uh, exposure to real patients. Uh, so they have seen some of the students come out now who seem to be not as well, not as prepared. The one uh, of my colleagues uh, suggested that there there used to be a handoff, like for a preceptor, and a, a say a say a first year you know nursing student who's just passed her NCLEX and she's on the floor. That there's a, a timidness about them that they're not quite what they used to be because of COVID. Right? They didn't get to see patients in their senior year, um, so they're very tentative about taking a patient and running with it, right? They, they keep coming back to the preceptor as though they're still not quite confident. Like they've missed that senior year of mm-hmm. having patients on their own in a, in, an, in a setting that was, you know, they had an instructor and they had nurses on the floor and now they're the nurse on the floor. So have you heard from your colleagues in terms of their students? I know that your students haven't gotten to that point, but um, what are you hearing from your colleagues? Yeah, that's a, a really great question, and you're right. I can only speak broadly about this because it's, you know, Cabrini, we have first and second year students only. So right. those students are not yet in the clinical environment. They will be soon um, coming up. But I can only speak to what my colleagues have told me, what I've read, um, you know, what my network um, of people has, you know, kind of reported out um, to, to groups of nurses. So from a broad perspective, yeah, I mean, we, when COVID hit and nursing education kind of got sidelined for obvious reasons, because the hospitals and health networks and other, you know, clinical agencies in the community had to think safety first and they right. were unable to accommodate students. So yeah. nursing education programs across the board pivoted to try to offer virtual clinicals. Um, we use simulation quite a bit in nursing education, which is, you know, if if the facility, you know, wherever you are, college, inst- or whatever institution you're at, if you have the capacity to offer SIM, not everybody has beautiful SIM labs. I mean, we happen to have a gorgeous SIM lab, but not everybody has the resources that we have um, at Cabrini um, or some of the larger institutions. Um, and they, we did the best we could to try to prepare students in terms of their skills um, and tried to do things virtually and tried to offer clinical experiences that were hybrid. And then slowly but surely, once the hospitals were allowing limited numbers of students in limited areas to come back, 
um, the experience of the nursing student was truly, truly limited. And mm-hmm. I think I think of this just like I think about, you know, being in, we, I look at the admissions packets for all the students that apply to Cabrini um, with our nursing admissions liaison, of course, she helps me quite a bit. But when we look at them coming out of, co- excuse me, coming out of high school, their junior and senior year, they are not prepared for college in some ways through no fault of their own. I mean, the kids two years ago couldn't even take their SATs because there was not an SAT um, testing site available because of COVID. This year, people are slowly and, start, and, you know, they're starting to come back and do it. But these college freshmen that are coming in, they're really struggling yeah. to transition into college because they've had very limited opportunity and exposure to life and, you know, situations. Yeah. They don't know how to react to real life. They don't know right. how to do anything other than being in a virtual environment for the last year and a half plus. So if you kind of, you know, translate that to these nurses, nursing students that were in their junior and senior year when COVID hit, they did not have the same opportunities. They did, we okay. did the best we could as a group as nursing education, and we did the best we could, um, you know, the health networks did the best they could and other community centers to allow students to come in, but it was this giant balance, just like everything else COVID, to make sure that we were maintaining safety, but also thinking futuristically that, oh, we need to have nurses, no, students need to be able to come in and, and practice, but it doesn't look anything like it did before. And what, does it, what are we preparing people for now? What we prepare nurses for now post-COVID is different than what we prepared them for pre-COVID right. in terms of practice. So right. it does that happen? Absolutely. I'm sure that the new nurses are terrified to right. be on their own in the same way that, you know, nursing graduates a couple of years ago were because they just simply haven't had the opportunity to be exposed to situations like that outside of a virtual or simulated environment, which again is an amazing opportunity, but the the whole like live element is missing right. from that. And it, it <laughs> right. makes sense right. to me. It's it's not okay, right. but it makes sense to me that um, you know, nursing students, no matter where they're from, what school, where they are in the country, I mean certainly they were affected by this and that's, you know, the considerations of the healthcare networks are, you know, they're thinking about that too. My colleagues and and, you know, in health networks, they are saying, you know, we have to revamp our orientation. What used to take us, you know, X amount of weeks, we added on so many more. We added on supplemental education for our new grads because they just okay. don't know. Um, so that, everybody's kind of bolstering what it is that we do to help them transition. Yeah, I know that um, last year during COVID, we asked uh, several chief nursing officers um, how they were addressing the, uh, the I guess, the nature of the of the graduates to the graduate nurses that they were hiring right because they also had a year of no interaction with with real patients uh and many of them had creative ideas like nurse residency program to kind of Mm -hmm. shelter them until they were ready right because but i think going back to high school is interesting to hear that from you is that the juniors and seniors now in high school are going to go to college uh next year and they will not come to college with the same set of skills that uh, five years ago somebody would have. Interesting. Well, the last two haven't, you know, my first two cohorts, I mean, they're fantastic, but even coming in fall of 2020 that, you know, their whole life shut down March of 2020 and here they are coming into college in August. Like that's an issue. And then last year, certainly those students, the ones that are in class now as first years, and I'm not just talking about nursing students, I'm talking about students in general. um, You know, they just, they were sat in a class, a virtual classroom for a year and a half. Like there's not that 
everybody didn't do the best we could because we all, I wouldn't have wanted to be a teacher during COVID. My goodness, what a challenging role. But, right. you know, everybody did the best they could, but you can't replicate the, the real one-on-one realistic experiences from Correct. human contact. And it, it just that really, it's, it's a ripple effect from, you know, coming into college to, I mean, I think, I mean, you can also take it down to not to get too deep and philosophical, but look at our poor little kindergartners. Look at infants and babies now. They don't know anything other than to wear a mask. They don't, they have like, they don't, we have to worry about stranger danger because everybody stays away from everybody by six right. feet, you know, right. that's the right. new normal for everybody. So it's just, it, it makes sense that our nurses transitioning um, are struggling because everybody's struggling to transition into whatever phase is next for them, including, you know, grown adults like myself. So right. Um, right. it's kind of a phenomenon across the board. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it, it's up to obviously either employers or, you know, schools like yours to address that in, in, mm-hmm. in different ways. And, uh, continue. One one of the things I heard you say, and I want to speak to this um, before we, we uh, end up, is the sim lab. So I way, way back when we were in nursing school, uh, we had what we call the skills lab, where you'd be observed and graded, you know, on things like starting an IV or inserting an NG tube. And <clears throat> I know that I briefly uh, saw the Cabrini sim lab, but also simulation lab. Um, and so tell me a little bit about how the sim lab works uh, and how, you know, what kind of skills are being assessed or taught there now? Sure. So, well, when you talk about simulation, simulation can range anywhere from a really low fidelity type thing to a high fidelity type thing. And what I mean by that is a simple skill where, you know, you use, um, you know, you do a health assessment on one another, or use simple task trainers to do it all the way up until you use the mannequins that sit up, talk, blink, breathe, have pulses. Oh. So that okay. would be the more high fidelity or like, you know, think high fidelity, like the more bells and whistles and low fidelity is that there's not a whole lot of technology. It could just be people sitting in a room debriefing, um, you know, in, in acting having standardized patients act in, you know, an environment like um, an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know, as a part of a student learning, that can be a simulation. It's a simulated environment. So if you're simulating in a community setting in an AA meeting, um, that can be simulation because you're doing it in a safe space with actors um, in the sim lab to help students glean the skills that they need to do that in real life or to complement the learning that they're doing um, off campus with, you know, real patients. Um, same can be said for the high fidelity mannequins. You know, you can run up, a, you can have somebody, you know, code or, you know, lose their blood pressure and their pulse um, and then practice resuscitating them with the mannequin. And their skills that are gleaned from that are trans- translatable or transferable over to when that happens you know, in your clinical practice at the bedside with the patient. So okay. simulation is meant to be a place where you practice skills. It's meant to be a place where you go through scenarios and all in a safe environment that you're prepared for that experience by the faculty with like a, at Cabrini, we give pre-assignments or we'll give pre-assignments, then a pre-brief, then they go in and do the actual simulated experience, whatever that may look like, high fidelity or low fidelity. And then there's a debrief. Um, with the faculty about like what everybody did really well and what how did we get such great outcomes with this simulation versus okay what were the mistakes or the things that we could have done differently and how could our outcomes have been better 
if we would have, um, you know, checked our medication and made sure we were giving two milligrams instead of 20, you know, things like there's opportunity (laughs) to go back and debrief and and learn and reflect. And then at Cabrini, they have assignments afterwards and every sim, every school operationalizes their curriculum different. So you could talk to 50 directors and get 50 different answers to this. Um, But the, the way that our students do it is then they, they also have an opportunity to reflect um, after the fact and then either journal about it or submit an assignment. So it's this, it's a whole experience that starts before the time in the simulated experience and ends well beyond that time as well in terms of reflection. Because the idea is to, to think about what you did and right. to either, you know, reinforce good behavior that has good outcomes or to, you know, reflect upon behavior that may have led to less than desirable outcomes for the patient. Hmm. Okay. I remember, and we do um, have just one. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to go ahead. You. Go ahead. One other thing, um, virtual reality is something that we're using in our sim lab. Um, and that's kind of a new thing on the horizon, you know, that people are starting to utilize the simulation because it's, it's a good way to um, put students in an immersive environment, which, you know, our traditional students, not necessarily our non-traditional students, but the ones that are coming out of high school um, of that age, you know, they're used to the technology and they're used to being immersed in experiences. So true, virtual true. reality is a good way to, it's a good educational tool to teach them the skills, um, you know, from basic skills to high level skills um, in an environment, more technologically rich environment um, like they're used to. So they, so students at Cabrini um, are going to have two years of classroom, right? And, and then do they go into the, uh, the the lab setting or do they go into hospital settings? How's the, how's your program designed? Well, our, it's a four-year program and basically the first two years are the core curriculum. So every college or university has a core curriculum that all students within the university take. So that's typically, um, you know, it could be spread out over however many years. At Cabrini, it's over two years. And then the last two years is all nursing all the time. And then they do take nursing courses at Cabrini in their freshman and sophomore year. Um, they're very low credit courses. They're just meant to build the community because we accept students right into the nursing major. So they're immediately accepted into our community. They know the faculty. They know their upperclassmen. Of course, right now they have one one upperclassman <laughs> class, right, right, but eventually right. there'll be more um, for mentoring. But um, there's that opportunity to indoctrinate them into the, into the profession, teach them accountability, professionalism, talk about hot topics. I mean, there was no lack of trends and issues to talk about last year um, right. with everything that was happening in our society and politically and with COVID. Um, so that's that's the way that it's integrated at Cabrini. But one of the things that I love about our program is we do have this beautiful lab that we were able to, you know, build and equip during COVID. And it's it's really, really state of the art. But what I'm really proud of in that is that even though the students in freshman and sophomore year don't utilize the lab for evaluative purposes, like they're not doing formal learning in there that's, you know, scripted, and they're not doing, they're not being evaluated or graded on it, we are able to get our freshman and sophomore students into the lab. So we just did um, this past week, we did like a safety lab where, you know, students walked in and there was all kinds of things going wrong with their mannequin and the IV pumps beeping and this and that. So we did all kinds of um, activities with them um, to get them 
throughout the freshman and sophomore year that don't count for anything. And frankly, they don't even have to show up. Like they don't get course credit. It's not required. They just come because they want to, um, because it's fun for them to be able and engaging for them to be able to touch the equipment before they're being graded on it. Um, so they come and they do things and learn how to use the beds and learn just the fundamental aspects that once you're at the bedside and you're worried about taking somebody's blood pressure, you don't want to also have to figure out how to use the bed, you know, like you want right. to come in with right. a, come in with a strong bed use. Right. So, um, yeah, I was I was in a uh, hospital <clears throat> a couple of weeks ago and there were students there and uh, the student came in to take a blood pressure and she used the uh, automatic blood pressure, the Dynamap, and the blood pressure was really low. And she didn't say anything to the patient. And <clears throat> I said, you might want to use a different cuff. <laughs> and she's, she just looked at me. And I said, you're a nursing student, right? She said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, you know, maybe come back and take it again, right? Like manually as opposed to automatically. Um, <clears throat> she never came back. So uh, I talked with her nursing instructor and I asked, I said, do, do, do nursing students learn how to take blood pressures manually? <laughs> you know, I, I'm a little bit surprised that she didn't come back with the uh, low blood pressure. And she said, well, they, they do they do take them if if they're abnormal, you know, if if it's abnormally high or abnormally low, they'll retake it with manually. I said, well, you might want to remind the student to do that. So I was disappointed yeah. to see that. Um, okay, so uh, just telling you a little FYI. Um, all right, so <laughs> noted. Uh, listen, I, I know. Don't don't. <laughs> it wasn't one of your students. Don't worry. I, I know my student. <laughs> no, but it's I just, would tell you. Know, you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know you would, Betty. <laughs> um, all right, Jen. So, so we could talk. I know uh, we we've had more candid and, and lively conversations, but I I, I want to be mindful of of our time. Let me ask you this final question: If, if someone came to you uh, and said they wanted to be a nurse, <clears throat> how would you respond? I would say, good for you. That's amazing. Thank you for, <laughs> you know, answering your call and what a rock star you are for thinking about this. <laughs> Let's talk about what it is that you want to do. Because a lot of times in my experience when people say, especially now post-COVID, I want to be a nurse. What they right. really mean is they want to help somebody. They want to help people. They want to make a difference. They want to be part of the healthcare team. So. Okay. My first question is always, tell me about what it is that you want to do. And some of them are very clear. I want to be a nurse practitioner. I want to be a pediatric nurse. I want to be an open heart nurse, whatever. And then okay. we talk through what that might look like and all the different options. But sometimes I've noticed, um, and I'm assuming that this is more COVID related than anything else because we're, you know, the big national spotlight's been on nurses for, you know, the last year and a half. Um, God, we're getting close to two years now. Um, but the... I would, I always try to break down with them. What is it that you want to do? Because sometimes they're thinking like they'd be better served to be a respiratory therapist or a physical okay. therapist or an occupational therapist or a, a doctor, a PA, you know, not every, okay. you have to kind of dive into, tell me what it is that you, what you want to do. And certainly I steer them towards nursing, but not if that's not what they want to do. Not if that's not okay. their passion. Um, because okay. BSN is the hardest degree to get, undergraduate degree to get. It's rigorous. Um, so you have to be in it. Your heart has to be in it. You have to not only have the academic um, strengths to do it, but you have to have the passion um, or some sort of motivation. So I always try to talk that through. You know, what is it that 
basically the first question you asked me, what is it that made you want to be a nurse? There was okay. nobody that was going to tell me I wasn't being a nurse after what happened to my dad. Do you know what I mean? And I had okay. the academic ability to do it. But okay. I would counsel people to find out what is it, you know, what is it that you really want to do? And if it's nursing, cool, we, let's talk. Let's talk about okay. the millions of things you want to do. Do you, where, do you want to work in an, internationally? Do you want to work in business? Like, what is it that you want to do as a nurse? Do you want to work at the bedside? Do you want to deliver baby? Do you want to be a midwife? Like, talk to me about yeah. what that, what it is that your goals are. And then let's kind of break it down to what makes sense for you here and now in terms of your education, because this is just the start. When you, when you enter into a nursing program these days, I feel like you should enter in knowing this is the first of many programs that you're going to go through educational programs, whether they're, you know, degree granting programs or certification programs. The life of a nurse is, is education, 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 whether it's hospital based, community based, right. academic based, doesn't matter. Right. Wow, that that was a great answer. I I, I feel inspired. I may want to become a nurse. Oh wait, I am a nurse. <laughs> oh shucks, I can't do it all over again. I would though if I talked to you. Oh, <laughs> um, you know what? Thank you for that. But I think you know your your place in our nursing world is essential and certainly shines light in in all the right places um, for people to understand, you know, what patient advocacy is. And we just had an open house on Sunday um, for Cabrini Nursing, very well attended, was very happy. People asked lots of questions. And one of the things they asked was, you know, who are your clinical partners beyond um, you know, the acute care, because I always emphasize acute care is super important, hospital is super important, but let's let's be realistic. Care is happening yeah. and is going to happen pre and post hospitalization in the community, in our, you know, in, in population specific communities. So we really have to start thinking about that so that one person put up their hand and asked, you know, what is it? The, the non-acute care, essentially, um, partners. And I mentioned guardian nurses, and I mentioned what it is that you do and, you know, that you dispatch nurses to advocate and, you know, basically be care navigators. And um, I enjoy sharing a little bit of your story and what it is that you do, um, because I think it's such an important part of what nursing education is and nursing as a whole as a profession. So thank you for what you do too, Betty. Oh, well, my pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate that, Jen. Um, so <clears throat> thank you for your words of wisdom and your, uh, really, I learned something as well, which is a credit to you as an educator. So thank you. Thank uh, and, you. Uh, a very uh, happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. And thanks for your time. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Betty. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy and safe holidays to everyone. Okay. Take care, Jen. All right. Thanks, Betty. Bye. Bye. If you have any questions that you would like us to address in a future episode, please email us at podcast at guardiannurses.com. That email again is podcast at guardiannurses.com. We would love to hear from you. Thank you for joining us this week. You can find the Lighting Your Way podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google, YouTube, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend and leave us a review. You can learn all about Guardian Nurses Healthcare Advocates on our website, guardiannurses.com. So until next time, find some joy in your life, pet all the good doggies and kitties, and remember to tell your people that you love them. Take care.